podcast has bad words. <laughs> well, here we are. Yes. With special guest Ryan Nicodemus. <laughs> thanks for <laughs> thanks for having me on right. yours and Laura's show. I really appreciate <laughs> it. You're such a good guest. <laughs> We're here with Laura McCallum. She is the author of We Are the Luckiest. And it's a book about addiction, about sobriety, about all of the addictions that we face, but particularly your journey into well sobriety from alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk to you about that in a moment. I also want to talk about our addiction to stuff. We are addicted to stuff in our, in our culture. Mm. Uh, but first, we have a little segment called More About Less. And I wanted to start by reading a, a little snippet from your book, uh, page 79 here. This is uh, chapter six, the opening. And uh, my wife, Bex, was talking to me about this because her and I are both introverts, and so we. the The title of this chapter is "Hell is Other People." <laughs> yes. You know what's interesting is so before we started recording this, we were talking about living in LA and like New York and how crowded it was. I find that introverts love living in crowded cities. Yeah, it's I, so interesting. It's like it's like you can be around all these people, but somehow still be left alone. Is that what it is? I don't. I don't think of Los Angeles as particularly crowded. I think hmm. it, it's it's dense. Populated. It is highly populated, but that population is spread out so far. Mm. The thing we were talking about is it's not one giant city. It's 88 different municipalities mm-hmm. all sort of sandwiched next to each other. So it's like it's, if you took... If you took like Dayton, Ohio, and you made 88 of them and put them all next to each other, that would sort of be yeah. Los Angeles in a way. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah I just find that fascinating how... Because um, I've had a couple like mentees who are high, high introverts. Yeah. And they love living in New I York City. There's something to that. There is something yeah. like being able to walk out. Not be alone. I, yeah. I mean, LA is still, it's what, like, right where we're at mm-hmm. is the most densely populated place in the country. Like, it's one of the most densely populated places right in the here. country. Yeah, here in Hollywood. Right. Right, right, right. It's also my least favorite neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can feel it here, too, compared to the other yeah, spots in the city. Yeah, it's like yeah. my nervous system right, walking right. down the street. It's like, oh, God. For sure. Right. A lot of people. So, so this uh, is called Hell is Other People. I never noticed how everywhere drinking was until I stopped doing it. I've heard other friends share this sentiment unrelated to long-term sobriety. When trying a dry January or a sober October, for example, people will often comment on how many times in a short 31-day period they had to say no to alcohol in order to abstain. Drinking, plans for drinking, casual references to drinking, jokes about drinking, memes about drinking, advertisements for drinking were everywhere are everywhere we live in a culture that drinks by default and although not everyone in my life cared about drinking the way i did most of them cared at least a little and i think you could replace drinking in these two paragraphs with all the stuff we were talking about earlier social media exactly cigarettes or yeah, uh, sugar, yeah, all of these different addictions are smartphone addictions. And, and so let's talk about this, though. Hell is other people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think the the crux of that chapter was when whenever you change, uh, it, it puts out these ripples to the people around you. It really kind of puts up a mirror to mm-hmm. their to their behavior, their um, what they're doing or not doing. And that can be a really difficult part of change because generally, and not because people have ill intentions for us or anything, but they don't like it when we change. We like things to basically stay the same, yeah. right? And um, when you change, it disturbs that. You know, mm-hmm. There's a disturbance in the force. And so people start asking questions or they might be 
passively or even aggressively judgmental of what you're doing or why you're doing it. How did that manifest in your life when people started uh, being aggressive or passive aggressive with you? Yeah, I mean, the drinking thing, it's, it's like the only drug that you have to explain not using, right? So people really notice when you're not drinking. Mm -hmm. And so even if you just go out to dinner um, and you, you would have usually, it's like the silent agreement everyone has in the groups that I hung out with anyway. We're all gonna drink. And if you don't, it's like, wait, what are you doing? Right, Why right. aren't you? So there's the questions that you get. There's the um, wondering, like, well, did you have a problem? Mm. You know, and, and the sort of digging for the story. And then there's also just the fact that, like, not everyone has a drinking problem. Not everyone, ha we don't all have the same things. You know, mm -hmm. you might struggle with sugar and I don't. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's still like it could be, it was hard for me to be around those things. The hell is other people is really like, look, I live in a world that drinks and I don't drink now. So this is kind of hell for a while. Mm, right. Yeah. And, and, and so really what I got out of that was the situation that we're immersed in. We don't realize that we're often living in a, a sort of hell until we start to change our behaviors and realize that, oh, I've been placing myself within the fires of, of a metaphorical hell here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah now I want I'm, I'm trying to get out and it's and it's hard because uh that's where that was the water I was swimming in for a really long yeah. time. And the judgment's hard too. And it's interesting how that happens. Like when you start to change your life, like you said, it kind of, you know, there's a disturbance in the force. Mm -hmm. But really what happens is when you're out to dinner and you've got a group of friends you're with and you're the only one not drinking, mm -hmm. they start to question their own drinking. That's right. You hold up the mirror. Yeah. yeah. And people hate to question their own behaviors. So really when they're judging, what do we say, Josh? Judgment is just a mirror reflecting the insecurity of the person who's doing the judging. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, that is, it's absolutely true. Yes. And, and to get past that, it does take um yeah it, it takes some thick skin i guess but also i know for me uh to help like when i was simplifying my life people were saying i was crazy but really they're calling themselves crazy yeah. because they couldn't see doing what i was doing right. and what i did is i tried to explain to people that it was a me problem yes not it's, you're not the problem it's me that's the problem and i'm trying yes i do have a problem with consuming i have a problem with the way i'm living my life and i'm trying to change that and the same thing could go with alcohol or any other addictions you have when you get that judgment. Uh, just make sure that people understand that it is it is a you problem and you're not judging them for what they do. It's something that you're trying to fix yourself in your own life. Can we talk about 12-step programs? Sure. Uh, Russell Brand, uh, ha he wrote a book on, on his sort of <laughs> so version of 12-step. His 12 version steps. of the steps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so have, you have you read this? Yeah, yeah I've got so it pulled good. up. I went to one of his events recently. Um, one of Bex's friends had an extra ticket and um, I just went by myself and it was a great event. I, I don't have alcohol addiction. I've never had a sip of alcohol in my life, but that's just because of what was modeled for me growing up. Yeah. I realized that I, I'm an alcoholic who's never had a drink of alcohol. <laughs> yeah. I tried to get him to drink so much in high school. <laughs> like, come on, man, just try it. He's like, why? Why do you need the drink? <laughs> so uh, here are Russell Brand's 12 steps, which is an iteration of, sort of AA, which I went to a lot of AA meetings with my mother. Um, uh, who's the friends of AA? Al-Anon? Yeah, Al-Anon. Yeah, mm. yeah, and I went to, to some of those as, as a kid as well. And so here are his 12 steps. <laughs> Step one. Are you a bit fucked? <laughs> <laughs> He's so direct with them. It's so good. Uh, step two. 
could you not be fucked? <laughs> and I think so. Again, going back to any type of addiction, this, this doesn't have to be about alcohol. With Are you me, a bit fucked? Right. Are you a bit consumerism? <laughs> I'm a bit fucked. <laughs> is it a, is it possible that you could be unfucked? <laughs> right. Just at all yeah. uh, uh, number three are you on your own going to unfuck yourself <laughs> <laughs> takes care of the god question right there oh my right. god and, yeah. and so uh no i probably can't do this on on my own that's mm. i got myself into the problem on my own i may not be able to get myself out of it uh number four write down all the things that you are fuck that are fucking you up or have ever fucked you up and don't lie or leave anything out. <laughs> and so this gets back to everything we were talking about earlier. The carbs, the sugar, the food addiction, the drugs, the smoking, the m money addiction, the status addiction, the addiction to attention. I know when I first discovered Twitter and then we developed an audience for me it was like it was that dopamine rush you were talking about where it's like oh i can tweet something and thousands of people are, people like me it's something yeah. i fight all the time yeah yeah and and you know we we have jessica now who manages our social media so i don't have to to look at all the comments and she what she'll do is she'll share the relevant ones with yeah. us mm. and i i feel like i don't have to like dive into because i don't want to give the, the the we call them seagulls you know the the troll seagulls they, they fly over they, yeah, they, they shit on everything right, and, fly, and away. fly away <laughs> right and, and and so i don't want to give the seagulls free rent in my mind Ugh. and yeah. and but they take up the space and and so i have to be really careful because it's easy for me to say i don't care but mm -hmm. uh someone has why why play that russian roulette of am is someone yeah. going to screw up my day today yeah where, where how far do i have to duck to like avoid this yeah right no and, and we so, all care so. yeah i did i totally uh over the weekend i uh posted like on my instagram stories um, we just had Paul Saladino on our podcast. He's a carnivore. Mm -hmm. So he talked to me into like doing raw liver and I was like, Oh, this is going to be funny. I'm going to give a shout out to Paul and I'm going to do these raw liver shooters. And oh. I didn't even think about it, but the reactions I got, mm -hmm. some of them were seagull reactions. Some of them were like really positive reactions, but all of a sudden I'm like, like there was this dopamine hit and there was something in my mind that was like, Oh, dude, you should post like all the crazy stuff you do. I mean, of course, I'm not right. going to do that. Imagine but the, how many people would follow? Right, exactly. Yeah. But like the thought totally crossed my mind. Mm -hmm. Paul Saladino, like you know, retweeted me or re whatever it is, shared my story on this. Right, but like it totally. I have to even as one of the minimalists. Well, that's I think what minimalism does is it helps us to look at these impulses and really question like, do we want to act on these impulses? Because we all have them. Yeah, it's really we a matter. Yeah. yeah, it's a matter of like how much do we want to act on them? Yeah. So back to the twelve steps here. Number five. Honestly, tell someone trustworthy about how fucked you are. <laughs> I think that's part of it is, is, is acknowledging it not just to yourself, but being candid uh, with you know, people that you, that you can trust. Yeah. You know, it's not just about vomiting in public uh, because that's the other risk that we have where there, there are two sides of this where you look at Instagram and quite often it is someone who's living the most perfect life ever with it's always picturesque or you have someone who is is constantly in, in perpetual distress. You call that trauma porn. Yeah. Oh, oh, wow. I would have put it. Yeah, that's. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and, and so well, you know, it's funny. Both of those situations, they're both fake, right? Like the it, it, although it's small not bits. actual vulnerability. It's I think right. Brene Brown calls it faux vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. Faux vulnerability. Faux vulnerability. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yes, that's meant to be like 
you and I sit in a room and we talk about this. We don't, yeah. The, right, and right. It's the you can't do it alone part. Yeah. yeah. And you don't have to broadcast it to everyone. It's finding someone you trust so you can work it out with them, right? right? Uh, number six is, uh, well, that's revealed a lot. Uh, well, that's revealed a lot of fucked up patterns. Do you, uh, do you want to stop it? Seriously? Hmm. Uh, I mean, I think that's, that's something important that, of course, acknowledging that you want to stop. And, mm-hmm. and, sometimes I think we don't we don't stop to say I want to stop this thing right even though because if you don't say I want to stop this then of course you're going to keep doing it you will yeah Yeah. and that's why those first five steps come before that sixth one because it's easy enough to say I want to stop or I don't want to stop whatever either one Um, but when you lay it all out Mm -hmm. you know then you can really see what because a lot of times we don't understand the effect that these things are having we don't Mm. you know we don't um, it's just the it's the water we're swimming in. Yeah. Right. And, and, and isolated, they don't have that big of an effect. So one purchase on Amazon is probably not going to break the bank. One glass of wine by itself is relatively innocuous mm-hmm. for most people, for everyone, really. Mm-hmm. But that becomes the trigger to this whole cascade of other things that right. happen, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And or, or you, you know, I have a lot of friends who say, I only drink a couple glasses of wine a night, right? Uh-huh. And it's like, yeah, you're probably, you're not going to qualify as an alcoholic, but you're, it's like having this wet blank, like you don't even know what is possible without that because you've never lived it. Right. It's like having this wet blanket on your brain all the time, mm. right? And and I think it's like that for a lot of behaviors. I think, and you have to create that space in order to see what's there. That's right. so true, yeah. You gotta go without it for a little bit to realize, yeah, what life is like without it. Right. Yeah. Well, number seven is, are you willing to live in a new way that's not at all about you mm. and your previous fucked up stuff? <laughs> you have to. So good, man. Um, and yeah, and so so am I prepared to and willing to live in a new way? And, and meaning, am I willing to change my behaviors yeah. that, you know, to use Russell Brand's vernacular, fucked me in the first place, right? This and, is so key, man. Like, I've dealt with a lot of addiction with family and friends and addiction on my own. And one thing is clear. If you're not, if the person isn't willing to change, if they don't want to change, like, they're never going to change um i love how he puts these steps because it really helps you be honest with yourself yeah and it's and it and he does it in a way that's not um i mean that's funny language in a way but it works it's like yeah are you a little out of control you know (laughs) (laughs) totally well yeah i mean uh what is the the idiom you know some of the most difficult things in life uh, can only be discussed through jokes right and he does such a great job of injecting that humor yeah exactly for sure Number eight is prepare to apologize to everyone for everything affected by your being so fucked up. Uh, <laughs> the dreaded amends. Yeah, yeah, let's talk about that. Um, did you did you go through this step yourself? I did. I did. Um, the the steps are interesting. So I they're often you know seen as like oh my god I got to fall on the feet of everybody I've ever wronged you know which is not the intention of the steps at all it's to acknowledge where your part and where things you know you've affected other people um, unless it could do harm to to acknowledge that right Um, and in in many cases it it might we have to be honest about that we have to be honest about that and and it's all the whole thing all the steps 
are in service of you taking responsibility for your experience, your entire experience of life, for mm. your feelings and and how I am in this conversation mm. for even the things that happened to you way back when, right? It's not taking blame, mm -hmm. but taking responsibility. Sure. So if you approach amends in that way, it's a lot, because who wants to do that? Who wants to go around apologizing and remembering, reminding people of all the shitty things that you ever did, right? It's a lot of weight, but what you're really doing is unloading that weight. Oh my God, there, I, I, it took me four years to do it. And, wow. and I only did it because I got into so much pain that I was like, all right, I'm willing to do whatever now to get out of this. Mm. Um, and it and it and it worked because mm. we don't often realize either the amount like back to this whole you don't realize the weight that you're carrying often you don't realize the weight your behaviors are carrying or or um you know I didn't realize the weight that I had but I just assumed everything was okay because I was living differently but it wasn't the case so. yeah yeah we 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 can't leave the past behind without sort of acknowledging you know part of of letting go is understanding what you're letting go of mm -hmm. right you you can't just uh walk away from something without setting it down first that's right oh you could tweet that podcast sean <laughs> all right let's uh, let's move on to the next step here now apologize unless that would make things worse so that was number nine we yep. already talked about that number 10 watch out for fucked up thinking and behavior and be honest when it happens. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's going to happen. Uh, we, we talked uh, moments ago about relapse, mm -hmm. but sometimes it's not a relapse in, in behavior. It might just be relapse in thoughts. That, that's certainly going to happen, but it could even be relapse in behavior. A and uh, I'm of the mind of if you, you know, if Lord, if you had a, a, a relapse today and you decided to have you know, a glass of wine or whatever, mm -hmm. Uh, obviously it wouldn't be ideal for you, but it doesn't mean that all your years sober are, are for naught. It means that um, there was, um, well, as, as he puts it here, you know, fucked up behavior with respect to your situation and acknowledge when that happens so you can break the cycle again. Yeah, the, I don't know if you know of Gabor Mate, um, but he, he says we should never ask why the addiction, but why the pain. So when people, when we relapse, which I really don't even like that word, but uh -huh. when we when we go back to behaviors that, you know, the fucked up behaviors, yeah. you kind of always got to go like, all right, what's really going on? Uh -huh. what's, the, what's the pain under there? Right. Yeah. What am I avoiding? Yeah. No, number 11 here is stay connected to your new perspective. Mm. And so you've removed yourself from the depths of hell. Make sure you stay out of hell. Yeah, so, mm. so that's spiritual maintenance. Indeed. And mm. number 12 is look at life less selfishly. Be nice to everyone. Help people if you can. Mm -hmm. Ryan and I often talk about contributing beyond ourselves in a meaningful way. There are a lot of ways you can do that. You can do so with your time. You can do so with your money. Uh, Ryan and I tr try to do both of those things. And it's great, but it's also not necessarily altruistic. It, 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 I do. I, I help others because it also helps me. Yes. Is there ever a truly altruistic action? Right. I, I don't know. I mean, you maybe... Some are more altruistic than others. Sure, right. Yeah, maybe if, it, if it's a spectrum, it's closer. Like right. Bambi's mother was probably yeah. an altruistic. And to make gear. it altruistic, like, <laughs> and like to make it altruistic, gear. do you have to like do something good, but then feel bad afterwards? Like, does that is that what makes it truly no, that's altruistic? <laughs> <laughs> that's another problem. Yeah, no, yeah. no, I don't know that. I I think there is probably a spectrum, but yeah, no, I service. That's why service is part of the you know, the model of the 12 steps and not just the 12 steps, any spiritual program, because yeah. 
it does help you to help others. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It also helps you give you perspective and helps you be grateful for what you do have, for your abilities, uh, for the position that you're in. Even if you see it as a, it might be less fortunate than someone else, but it's certainly more, you have something to be grateful for somewhere. Yeah, it gets Mm -hmm. you out of your own problems too, which is... Yeah, always useful. Well, speaking of problems, we have a bunch of questions. <laughs> I have a bunch of problems. Let's just go over my problems. <laughs> All of these questions are from uh, the same user, Ryan Nicodemus. Uh, now, Caitlin has a question for us, Ryan. Why haven't people realized that it should not be the norm to drink as much as we do? Mm. The fact is... The fact that it's so acceptable makes it so much harder for people to get it under control or stop altogether. This is absolutely true. I mean, every time you turn on the TV, there's a there's an alcohol commercial uh, living here in LA. There are certainly billboards for alcohol. When you ask, like, "Hey, what do you want to go do? Let's go have a drink. Let's go. Let's go to happy hour." It's like it's such a commonplace in society. I mean, I think, you know, to answer her question head on, why haven't people realized it? Well, it's because we're very irresponsible with the way we communicate alcohol uh, in our society. It's it's a very, not only is it oversaturated with advertisements and, uh, you know, the norm to like go out to happy hour and stuff, but um, the way that we portray it on, I mean, think of... Uh, the reality TV shows. James Bond, Shaken Not Stirred. Yeah, James oh. Bond, or even like reality TV, like the Jersey Shore. I just watched Love is Blind, the mm. new one, mm. and they were drinking the whole way through. Right. I couldn't believe it. It's like I that. Mean, ha- I could, but I it's, it's like that has to be part of the fun equation. Yeah. And it's interesting that America is really, maybe Canada too, but I know, I know Americans have that uh, just kind of stuck in their head that alcohol is part of the fun equation. When you go to other, when I go to other countries, al- their alcohol is there. People are drinking, but it's not. It doesn't. It's not necessarily part of the equation. Yeah. No, we've been totally. We've duped ourselves, and we've been totally duped. Yeah. I read this uh, this study that came out in the UK at the end of last year, and it said if alcohol came out as a drug today, it would be banned. There's just no way it would mm, ever. For sure. All right. Yeah. It yeah. would because it, it is the most dangerous drug. It kills more people than all the other drugs combined every year. It's like. If you really look at it, it's but we don't hear that information no. because it's a multi-billion dollar business. It's interesting how we have like the smoking, the tobacco companies, they have to pay for anti-tobacco advertisements. Yeah. But it's not the same with alcohol. It will, we'll get there. I yeah. Think. You think yeah. so? I think we're in that phase of, of alcohol like cigarettes were in maybe the 80s. You know, ironically, smoking in America has gone way down, but in Europe, it's still a very prevalent thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, yeah, and we've also been acculturated over many centuries now. There was a time that it actually made sense to drink alcohol because water would kill you in a lot of places because we didn't have potable water you know, for several centuries, even in, in Europe and everywhere else. So, so you know, there's stories of German monks drinking nothing but beer all right, day. Right, but it wasn't the, the beer, it wasn't the alcohol that we consume today. Right, but yeah. we, we were acculturated to say that was beer and they had to, and they drank that throughout the day. So it became part of the everyday life. And then as beer changed and alcohol changed in general, we continued to consume it, even though now we have, I mean, I'm drinking nice filtered water right here and it's, it's, perfectly hydrating don't lie josh that's vodka i, I knew it <laughs> <laughs> you're you like we're having about? lauren <laughs> <laughs> no, and um uh, it's not beer it's wine <laughs> oh inside joke that is yeah so this was josh's 
mom like he he'd come home and she'd be drunk and he's like mom you're drinking again and she was like i am not this is beer it's not wine (laughs) (laughs) but again that's sort of part part of the acculturation there uh was um yeah it it actually made sense like of course even me i'm gonna start drinking beer if water is going to kill me because of the the pathogens right it's not the world we live in now exactly and so we need to untether ourselves from our history and realize that the acculturation of the history plus the acculturation of all of these advertisements and and the the mediation through tv shows and and movies etc it doesn't mean it has to be yeah for me i'm in a unique position because I, when we go out to, even if we go to a bar or something, it doesn't matter to me. I just have a club soda. It's right. not a big Same deal. now. Right. But but there was a period where you had to untether from that totally. because it was a trigger. Totally. And, and, and that makes sense with any of these addictions we're talking about. If it's smoking, what are your triggers for smoking? For most people, it's getting up in the morning. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> it, it, having a sip of coffee. Yeah. Having a sip of coffee. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and finishing a meal or whatever it might be. And so you have to identify, and maybe this should be like, step mm. six and a half in the 12 steps yeah. where it's like identify your not just your behaviors but your triggers yeah. for those behaviors and then I found for me replacing those triggers with with a a, a different sort of outcome so for me um, I, I have like certain triggers I've set up so I have a, a pull-up bar uh and where, where my bathroom is. So every time I, I go to the bathroom, I will do six quick pull-ups. And, and that's a trigger for me. Uh, and, and so how, what can you replace these, okay, I just finished a meal, instead of I'm going to stop smoking, is I'm going to start doing something else as yeah. a result. Yeah, changing your state. Yeah, and are there things that you re- replaced alcohol with? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not all of them healthy. Uh, um, yeah, I mean... I, tons of things, because all of a sudden I had so much space in my days, you know, drinking and recovering from drinking takes up a whole lot of time, it mm-hmm. turns out. <laughs> so, I mean, I started working out a lot more. Exercise is amazing, because yeah. it's like the best antidepressant ever. Um, I got, I started writing. I mean, that was the big one. Like creativity mm-hmm. is is huge for people uh, in overcoming addictions, because you have all this energy, right? That wants to go somewhere did you ever read a book called uh, daily rituals by mason curry no he writes about 100 i think it's 163 different authors well creative people most of whom are authors mm-hmm. from the last three or four hundred years and they all share s- seem to share three things in common one is they all like to walk a lot yeah which was fascinating <laughs> yeah uh and then two and three were coffee and alcohol like uh, uh, uh was caffeine and 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 alcohol and and it seemed that all of them had at least two of them most of them shared all three of those things and i i don't know why that is like it's it's uh, extremes it just with feels like a bad trope though right yeah, yeah like, like, like so i feel the, like the artist has to booze a lot or something right. yeah like yeah. i must destroy my life in order to write about it yeah, yeah. <laughs> i have like, to cause yeah. inflict pain so right I can... if i don't have pain then i can't write about anything well it's almost like you they would drink so much coffee to get stimulated but then once you're so stimulated you down. yeah yeah you gotta come down and then, yeah and then you gotta yeah yeah so the and i mean yoga is huge meditation became huge walking is huge for me too like yeah. taking really long walks being outside um being in nature i'm a huge fan of telling people to do that too like you have this entire world, you know, to to go explore. So, yeah, I had to do all kinds of, and even just small things. Like, I let myself eat whatever the hell I wanted once I got sober because it was like we're 
we're not going to worry about that. You just need to, you know, worry about these addictions and the order in which they're going to kill you. Mm. So enjoying food again, you know, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's always got to be, it, it takes time, but you can change your brain. That's what we've been saying all along. Like you have to change your brain. And ultimately it's always what's underneath anyway. Like it's never about the alcohol or the, yeah. the thing that's going on. So I feel like I got to bring up uh, James Clear's book, Atomic Habits. Yeah. Have you read that? Yeah. yeah. It's so good. Very, very good. Because he, you know, you've got um, two different approaches to habits. You've got like the spiritual side of it. Mm-hmm. And then you've got like the practical side. And I think he did a good job of kind of molding the yeah, two together. I would agree. And uh, yeah, I can't sit, you know, we can't sit here and talk about every single thing he written about his book. He wrote in his book. But uh, we did have him on the podcast. Do you know what episode number that was? Not off the top of my head. Oh man, you're Damn letting it, me. You're you, failing. Yeah, you're no. getting. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta re, uh, re update your memory. <laughs> <laughs> he needs a new SIM card. That's right. He needs a SIM card. Well, we'll figure out what episode that was in a podcast, Sean. If you don't mind putting that in the show notes, we got a question from Sunshine Josh. How does cognitive dissonance play a role? in addiction now mm. i certainly know what cognitive dissonance means but maybe some of our our listeners don't so let's talk about what cognitive dissonance is first before we answer this question okay okay you'll so, do a better job of explaining it than I, me i don't know i'm exceptionally tired right now so <laughs> i can explain I can if take you, over all right <laughs> go for it laura you explain cognitive dissonance it's um <clears throat> where you the way that you're the things that you're doing your actions um don't add up with your how you view yourself Mm -hmm. basically so you are doing these things but it's not in line with the vision that you have of who you are yes so here's an example of that i i spent most of my 20s saying i wanted to be a writer but actually didn't put the fingers to keyboard or pen to paper and so so i was an aspiring writer but did very little writing there's a lot of cognitive dissonance in that yeah and you probably had a lot of identity too you're like i'm a I'm a writer. Right. But I don't that's write. That's who I am. <laughs> right. But you're not. Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah. Another example I think of is because I believe that we need a little cognitive dissonance in our lives. It's a, it's a coping mechanism. It, it is. Like I think about probably like the worst example of it that I have in my own life is, you know, I'll use a laptop. I use a cell phone. Uh, I fly in airplanes. Mm-hmm. I mean, those three things alone, like those are very polluting to the earth. Yeah. So it's like, I ha- you if I know s- that all the time, right. I mean, I'd have to become, you know, a monk mm-hmm. in order to like, you know, avoid all those things. So there's this, although look- I've seen a monk using an ATM. <laughs> we got a picture. I got a picture of it. <laughs> yeah, we were in uh, Des Moines, Iowa. Yeah. And he walked up. He was to like, a the drive like that just shouldn't happen. <laughs> yeah, it was very strange. It's like even a monk is probably, I've seen them talking on phones and getting yeah. on planes. Oh dude, when I was in Thailand, I was in Bangkok. I had a little, like a layover there, like a seven, eight hour layover. And I went to the temple and it was so, it was, it just blew my mind. Like first off, they have this thing where you can pay to release doves to uh, let fish back in the river. You can like, you know, free you these pay things. To do that? You pay to do this because it's supposed to like, you know, you're freeing an animal. Okay. So it's freeing a bit of your soul. But like literally where you free the fish, th- there are so many fish right there because the dude selling the fish is constantly chumming. Oh. So there's fish just like jumping out of the water that he catches every day. And then he puts in cages and then you pay to release them the same thing with doves are there are these huge bird traps that every single morning he's got all these birds he cages them up and then you pay to set them free it is humans are so it is so crazy and then and then i was in the temple and there was um there was one monk in there and he was you know uh sitting up high like being this this holy figure and I'm walking through looking at kind of, it was like a museum slash like temple. 
And this, A, he did not look like he wanted to be there. He was on his cell phone. I swear to God, on his cell phone talking. And as I was walking up, I think he assumed I was there to like, you know, get his blessing or something. But I mean, like, we don't speak the same language, but I could tell by his body language, he was saying, here comes another Westerner. I got to. I got to take care of this. And like, he kind of rolls his eyes, hangs up and he like, you know, and then he sits there and he waits for me. Like, I didn't, you know, I don't know what to say to this guy. So I just like kept yeah. on walking and he just looked at me like, oh, and then gets back on his cell phone. I mean, it was unbelievable, man. Well, so, so we often think of monks as like these supreme meditators, but most monks actually don't meditate. Mm. And, and so we have this, again, it's what it's a, a, a cult. Uh, our, we've been a culture to accept the fact that like if you're a monk you are this type of human You've renunciated being. everything right yeah. but you're still a human being and yeah. you're still using the atm and phones and all this other oh. stuff it, uh, even even monks often lack discipline right. i think is the, the the point here well i think yeah i i think really uh you know it comes down to yes we're all human and we all lack or we have a hard time with discipline yeah. all of us do yeah. so it's a matter of like how are we going to live our lives to be as disciplined as possible but accept that we're all—that's always going to be a struggle it's our for humanity. us. Yeah, have, well, yeah, can't you can't get rid of it. Yeah. Back to Sunshine's question here, I think that cognitive dissidence plays two roles in, in addiction. Yeah, as a, a person, you know, my, my mom didn't think of herself necessarily as an alcoholic, mm. and even though she drank every day, mm-hmm. but when she became sober, sober, she also thought of herself as an alcoholic. Yeah, because that's what helped her understand. Like, I can't have drinks I, I can't go and just get a you know a, a six pack of beer or a bottle of wine i'm gonna drink the whole thing mm-hmm. and so the the cognitive dissidence kept her drinking until she switched what she was cognitively dissident about yeah. and mm-hmm. that actually kept her sober for a while yeah, yeah. i think and um it is a intelligent psychological defense mechanism that we have um i think when it goes too far it's it's denial. I mean, you, you know, and that's a real, real side of addiction. But I, for me, it plays a, it played a role because I couldn't, if I could, if I could feel all the things that were the results of my drinking, I would be shattered every day, right? Mm. Like I had real significant consequences and so much shame that was bearing me. So in that way, it played a role by distancing me from that a little bit, right. but it also distances you from how bad the problem is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I, uh, I always told myself my, I wasn't addicted cause it wasn't that bad. Yeah. Um, I could stop anytime I want cause yep. I've stopped a thousand times. Yep. <laughs> like I'm not as bad as that person. Yeah. yeah oh, that's always, the worst one, right? Yeah. Cause uh, there's always someone. That's, oh, that was my thing. Like when I was, so Ohio, especially Dayton, Ohio is like the opiate capital of the world. Yeah. Um, like all the heroin in the United States, like the vast majority of it. I don't know if it still does, but 10 years ago, it all came through Dayton, yeah. Ohio. Yeah. What's well, the overdose capitals? I mean, as of two years ago, it was still yeah. the overdose capital yeah. of America. So uh, like it all started with me like breaking my thumb. I got some pain pills. I was like, oh, these are great. Like this totally makes me feel good. It's mm-hmm. like I can have the worst day of my life, but take a few pain pills and oh, wow. Everything's like, fine. Everything's fine. Like, yeah, that's bad, but it ain't that bad. Yeah. <laughs> so I used to tell myself like, well, at least I'm not using heroin. Totally. You know, and that's how I totally justified it was the lies I the cognitive distance I had is I told myself it's not that bad. I can quit if I really want to. And at least I'm not using heroin like everyone else I know who has switched from pain pills to heroin. Yeah. And yeah, so I do think that, yeah, I mean, it does play a huge role in addiction. There's some good questions that I have that um, can help people with that. So the question we usually ask is like, is this bad enough that I have to change? 
whatever yeah. it is, mm-hmm. you know, and you can instead ask, is this good enough to stay the same? Ooh. And then the real question is, am I free? Like, am I free in this behavior that I have in this relationship, whatever it is? Am I free? And you know, you know the truth of that when you ask it. Is this good enough to stay the same? And maybe another way to think about that is, would I do this again? Like starting from from blank slate, and this can be mm-hmm. true with consumerism. It could be true with uh, our the daily diet that we choose. It could be true with a relationship as well. Like, yeah. uh, okay, maybe this relationship's okay, it's comfortable or whatever. But would I redo this right now? If I just met this person, would I be excited about being in this relationship? If I just met this bottle of wine, would I be excited about drinking it? Would I bring myself to this place again? Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. What, what, a great way, what a great way to put it. Aniki has a question, Ryan. Where do you draw the line between a bad habit and addiction? I think it's a phenomenal question. I don't know the answer to this. No. Do, you, do, do you delineate the two? Um, I think not necessarily. Um, addiction has a quality of i mean it really interrupts your decision making process like significantly so it's more of a spectrum is how i look at it right Uh, what starts out as maybe a bad habit um where maybe you're suffering some consequences but they're not really significant whereas an addiction the consequences are usually more significant okay yeah because i mean i don't know man a bad habit is like sleeping in maybe Con- you, constantly hitting the snooze. Uh, yeah, like is, is that an but is that an addiction? It could are you be. addicted to sleep? Uh, you know, right, or yeah. are you just depressed? You know, yeah. or or what? Yeah, I think I think if you go back to the something you continue to do despite negative consequences, um, a bad habit or could qualify as the same as an addiction. So yeah, I, I think I think yeah. what we're talking about here is is all addictions are bad habits not all bad habits are addictions yeah yeah cool uh donna wants to know how do you know when your drinking has become a problem see this is a this is a a, a fine line because it's actually not a line at all it becomes a bit of a of a spectrum you were talking earlier about someone can have one or two drinks a day and 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 this is what's happening with bex uh my wife and Mm -hmm. she you know she's never had a problem with alcohol or any substance abuse but there was a period of time when we were first dating where she was drinking pretty much every night, but it would be one or two glasses of wine. And yeah. she realized there was even some negative consequences to that. Yeah. And I, I would say that it was a bad habit for her. So this goes back to the previous question. She wasn't addicted. It was easier for her to stop, but it was something she was relying on without necessarily even knowing. It became habitual. It's a psychological right? reliance, but yeah. she wasn't, say, physically addicted to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and so... So how do you make so that distinction? I think if you have some secrecy around it, that's a really good oh. indication that there's a problem. Yeah. Like if you're hiding how much you're doing it, if you're and you only know that, right? If mm-hmm. you if you um hide how much you're thinking about it. Yes. Thinking about it or not think, you know, trying to not do it. There's a tip off people that j- what I say and it's like people hate hearing this, but it's true. People who don't have a problem with alcohol don't think about having a problem with alcohol. Yes. Yeah, I was just gonna <laughs> wow. say like, if you're looking in the mirror and you're asking yourself, do I have a problem with alcohol? Yeah. You might have Sorry. a problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I've, I've never asked that question. Um, yeah. And yeah. Because I've never, you know, I, actually the thing is, in a way, I already know I have a problem with alcohol. Right, so you just so cut I, it off before. Right, yeah. before it, it, it's just not a behavior I'm willing to even even consider. Right. This is an interesting question from Kelly. How do you talk with your doctor 
about prescription medication to assist with sobriety. Mm. This is kind of recent, like the last decade, I think. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. There's um, uh, naltrexone. There's a few different ones that can help take away they make drinking really unpleasant for one right and they take away supposedly i never have experienced these the the cravings for alcohol Mm. um most doctors are actually pretty willing to subscribe this because they like subscribing right (laughs) um so so how you talk about it is say i'm i'm curious you know i'm a little worried about my alcohol consumption and i i was wondering if you know we could look at find out what the names of the drugs are and, and look at that um, there's limit. There's su- some success with that, um, mm. but the problem is it, you don't really address the underlying issues, so it can interrupt the behavior for a while. Yeah. yeah. And, and so if it's a temporary mm. sort of uh, behavior interrupter, that's great. But right. the actual behaviors need to change long term right. if you want to em- actually embrace sobriety. Yeah. You know, maybe Kelly's question is rooted from maybe embarrassment that she feels yeah. from having to ask for help, but. You know, Kelly, if you or someone you know like is in this point where they're like, I want to ask for help, but I feel embarrassed about it. It's, I mean, go to the 12 steps. Like you got to admit to yourself you have a problem. You have to admit that uh, there is a possibility for you to be unfucked and you've got to ask for help to get unfucked. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, you have to jump off that cliff somehow. Yeah. Open your mouth and say the words, you know. And in a way, she's already done that because she's she asking did. the question. Yes. So, so good so, job. Yeah. Bravo. You have, you have asked the question. Now it is time to follow up on it. Claire has a question for us. Coffee! (laughs) I've been able to give up alcohol and pot very easily, but because I genuinely like coffee, it's harder to refrain from drinking it. I drink one cup most days. Do you have have to completely stop not to be considered addicted? Do you have to completely stop to not be considered addicted? Yeah. Hmm. So, um, no. I, I, although I drink probably two... So occasionally three cups of coffee a day. I used to drink way, 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 <laughs> oh, yeah. way more than that. I'm certainly addicted to coffee. I, 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 there, I'm, I won't dispute that whatsoever. Um, but, it, but let's go back to the the definition of addiction. Sure. Is it something that is having a very much negative effect on Not your life? Very much. Does it have some? It, yeah. may, maybe marginally negative. But you're willing to... So so that's the other thing. Like, nobody's striving for perfectionism here. Sure. Like, you don't want to give up... I don't want to give up coffee. I have two, <laughs> three cups a day. Um, I, if I drink too much, I get, I get anxious yeah. and I don't feel that great. Same. Uh, well, even like living in Los Angeles, we're giving up air quality. Like, yeah. we're breathing in some of the worst air quality in the in the country. Um, but are we going to leave LA? Like, there, there are some negative effects, I think... I don't know. It's like, where do you draw the line? Maybe that's the question. Yeah, so how do you help draw that line? And it's personal for everybody. And I yeah. think you have to be honest about what it's costing you, you know, and if you really want to give it up. Yeah. 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 And for me, the the costs are, are so minuscule relative to the benefits yeah. for me. Whereas, you know, smoking, I can't really, what's the benefit of smoking? I might look cool to a particular subset of the population. Heck yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> I can see you smoking. I right always now. think to myself, man, Milburn would be so cool if he had a pipe in his mouth. <laughs> a pipe? <laughs> a crack pipe? <laughs> yes. We escalated that quickly. <laughs> oh, you know what's funny is how like are you just coming home smoking meth out of a light bulb in states yeah in states where uh, pot isn't legal they they sell bongs for tobacco use like Uh could you could you imagine someone smoking tobacco oh how terrible that would feel (laughs) 
just walking down the street. Uh, like, can I have a hit of that? Sure. Wait a minute. This is tobacco. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think we've answered Claire's question. Let's move on to another question from a different Kelly. All right. What role do boundaries play in getting sober? Mm. Lori, you've talked about boundaries. Let's let's expand on it a little bit because boundaries are are so important. They help us not only identify what we need to do, but also what we need to avoid. Yes. So um, p- con- boundaries can be really confusing. Um, people often think that they're rules, like rules you might have for other people and how they should behave, um, rules you have for yourself, and they're they're really not. They're um, the way I like to say it is like boundaries are saying what this is what works for me. Yeah. Period. Right? Absolutely. This is what works for me, and it has everything to do with sobriety. Like having taught at this point thousands of people um, in sobriety, I can say that our boundaries are usually shit when we get sober. Mm. You know, because we have zero self-esteem, there's there's all kinds of factors. So you have to work up that, that sense of will again, like and in your sense of self, mm. right? So that you can say, this is what works for me. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting because like we're, when you are addicted, you're running from something. Yes. And because you're willing to avoid that pain or that discomfort at all costs, like you, you don't have any boundaries. Yeah. You don't have a self. Yeah. 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 You, 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 you have a self, but you have left it. Right. And so I think of boundaries as like this um, rediscovery of self and this sort of ass- assertion of your values. Right. And it's extraordinarily difficult at first. Um, but just to answer her question they're you know inextricably linked for sure yeah absolutely we, we put up boundaries all the time and and i mean we have to they're, they're necessary i live in an apartment building we have walls between my my apartment and my neighbor's apartment that is a boundary and it's right? not mean no you're not punishing your neighbor in fact it's kind it's so kind they don't want to see that <laughs> no and, and and so it's important to realize that that there are healthy boundaries. There are also unhealthy boundaries. If you lock yourself inside of just four walls and, and never leave mm-hmm. and, and turn into, um, uh, who was that? Hughes? Where oh, yeah. Oh, Howard Hughes. Yeah. Yeah. Howard Hughes. He's <clears throat> peeing a mayonnaise jars by the end of it. Um, yeah. So that's that's an that unhealthy would be, boundary. That would be, yeah, rigid boundaries. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It, you want to be have these like flexible boundaries, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And th- there's a good book called Boundaries by Dr. Henry Cloud. Uh, and I would encourage Very you good. to check that out as well. Well, that's, uh, you know, that's why I love the minimalist rule book we have, Josh, is because those are, you know, boundaries that you and I share. And yes. some of those boundaries actually look different between Josh and I, and that's okay. But, you know, those boundaries that we share, it's kind of like, hey, here's what we do. You can do similar things and kind of manipulate the rules or the boundaries that that works for you but it is a very personal thing yep but it has to be done if you want to if you want to get unfucked (laughs) it has to be done yeah and it's always almost always to do with other people like if we go back to that first question about hoarding you know i my first thought was like oh my god these two have no boundaries Mm -hmm. you know and um and the, the 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 misunderstanding about it is that we think that it's mean or that boundaries, um, you know, create distance between us and another person, but it's actually how you create intimacy with them because yeah. you're yeah. teaching them who you are and how, you know, you're being honest about who you are. I love that. Yeah. Like if you're always telling someone, yes, you're not creating any boundaries, then yeah, you're, you're, you're kind of, you're, you're avoiding that intimacy that could be. Yeah. Yeah. You're not, you're not 
um, I mean, if intimacy is sharing your true thoughts and feelings, yeah, right? Yeah. If you're not doing that, then there's no shot at intimacy. And yeah. Yeah. I love that. I've never looked at it that way. All right. Um, where are we at, Josh? Uh, Cal- oh, Nikirsha. Why is it that sometimes we know that we're addicted to something and we know the solution, but we still don't do anything to fix it? I believe that is the definition of addiction, <laughs> though, right? Yeah. Right. It, well, <laughs> there's many reasons. Sometimes yeah. we don't realize we're addicted, I think. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, we don't realize we have the problem. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's maybe like the step zero is before we even realize or acknowledge we have a problem. And that can happen manifest over many years where we didn't have a problem with alcohol at first, yeah. right? You didn't have the first drink and then all of a sudden uh, you're an alcoholic necessarily. It might take a while to become addicted to something. Ryan, when you got the, the pain pills pres- uh, prescribed to you. Which time? Uh, the, very, the, well, the, the first time. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It, it, you, you took the first one. It's like it wasn't like, okay, now I'm addicted. Yeah. No. I'm going to go shoot up some heroin. Right, now, exactly. Yeah. No, it's... There, are, there are some drugs. I hear that, that meth in particular is a drug that apparently you start to experience withdrawals from uh, on the, the the first time yeah um, i think any yeah real any potent stimulants i think you yes. experience like withdrawals yeah yeah and, and so uh but to to the question here is why is it that sometimes we know we're addicted so eventually it, we acknowledge yeah, the, the addiction the addiction we know that it's a problem and quite often we know the solution and with drinking the solution is simple but not easy it, it is stop drinking Stop putting that in your body. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty simple, but it's a hard thing to do. Mm. But I actually think that is the answer to why don't we fix anything? Because it's hard. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it is, and, and to your point, it is about not doing the thing. But of course, it's never about that thing anyway. So I think part of the reason we it is so hard to stop is because when you take out that coping mechanism because that's what they are all these addictions there's coping mechanisms you're left with yourself and the reasons you were doing it to begin with mm. which are very difficult yeah. right it's the, hard to hit those head on the trauma and the feelings and all of that so yes yeah, simple but simple but easy well yeah i mean yeah it's hard to change your state it's hard to stop hanging like all my friends well not all of them but a lot of my friends i hung out with i'm like oh like we're just getting messed up together. Yeah, that's what our that's what our time consists of, um, and it sucks getting rid of your friends that you actually look at and you like being around. Um, but yeah, it's 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 definitely hard work, for yeah, sure. Yeah, I think I think one of the things is we don't. The the saying is that um, we we don't fear change. We fear being changed, or we don't dislike change. We dislike being changed, mm-hmm. and we feel as though if we give up this thing we're also being changed in many ways you are being changed you may not be able to associate with all the same people it might mean that you're realizing now that some of the relationships you have in your life they're toxic relationships for you and and we we discover that whether it's with consumerism or it's with alcoholism or it's with any of these other addictions that we're talking about these people that we let into our lives they might have the best of intentions but they might not be the best relationships for us in our own recovery uh, our own sobriety yeah matthew has a question for us how does addiction have a lasting effect on the people around the addict Mm. Mm. Man, it's so many effects. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. Um, I think the saying goes like it's a it's a family disease. You know, the, the people around you kind of get sick, too. Um, man, that's a whole other podcast. It really is. 
But uh, a lot of times it results in codependent behavior. You know, people, kids especially, jump in to take care of the parent um, and assume a parent role, and that causes all kinds of psychological problems for them. And then they do that in adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a it's it's really hard to answer that succinctly, but I will acknowledge that it does cause a lot of pain and problems, and that the the addict uh, is not the only person that needs to heal you right. know, in that case. The people around them need to as well. Yeah, yeah, it, it creates trauma for the the whole family, especially for children. I mean, I know Ryan and I grew up around a lot of drug and alcohol abuse uh, Same, and yeah. A, yeah, a lot of physical abuse too, right? And that is traumatic and quite often we don't realize that, you know, I, I didn't start unpacking that trauma until I was in my, my 30s yeah. really, right? right. And, and it, it's, maybe I wasn't equipped to deal with it. Maybe I was too close to it throughout my 20s. Maybe I was just distracting myself, but eventually it surfaces yeah. mm-hmm. and we have to deal with it at some point. And so realize that, yeah, you might have some behaviors that are really fucking you up, mm-hmm. but they they it might be much worse than that. It might be really screwing up the people around you, the people you care about most. And maybe that actually helps give you the leverage to make some important decisions, some difficult decisions to change those behaviors. Yeah. yeah. Totally, man. I mean, it's... I mean, that's why I got divorced. It's funny. Like, I really didn't even think about it till now. I mean, I wasn't in a happy relationship, yeah. but I used pain pills to mask the unhappiness. Yeah. But it just created a situation that was even more toxic than without the pain pills. Um, yeah. Thinking about, like, my... Uh, I had I overdosed. Um, I have siblings who have overdosed. And the effect that it has on... On the families, it's crazy. My, I, I mean, I have a brother in prison right now yeah. uh, for his his uh, addictions that he goes and does illegal things to supply, mm-hmm. to get money for his addictions. And I mean, it was to the point where, uh, you know, my, my mom had to be like, look, you can't come around. I love you, but you can't come around anymore because yeah. every time he came around, it, he was just coming around to see what he could steal yeah. and go pawn. Wow. Yeah. And... Yeah, I mean, it's like you said, it could be a whole other podcast on the yeah. trauma that you create for other people Yeah, when when you're addicted and like just so out of control. Um, Marissa has a question for us. Can you talk about the stigma around recovery? Hmm. So there is a stigma here, sure. right? Where, 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 and I think, if I'm being honest, I think 90% of the stigma is internalized where, where, uh, we think other people are judging us where they're actually not judging us most of the time, but we're afraid to you know, talk about you know, it. It takes a lot of, of bravery to talk about someone, let alone write an entire book about this thing, right? And, and so there is definitely a stigma around changing. Yeah, it, that's a curious question. A stigma around recovery or around addiction? Well, I, I think it's both, right? Because the, the, the recovery... Is assumes that assumes that oh well that person has a problem right they so, had a, an addiction to recover from yeah like when you're out with your friends and you're not drinking and all of a sudden they're like why aren't you drinking do you have a problem with it <laughs> yeah. it's like you have to answer that question like yeah. you have to be honest like yeah i do have a problem and you don't have to admit the the problem if you're not in recovery right yeah mm-hmm. yeah, yeah 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 so maybe I that's think, what that you know i think from. that um there's there's a lot of factors here but i think it's also sort of simple um we definitely see Although addictions are very, are completely human, alcohol and drug addiction manifests in some pretty ugly ways, right? Yeah. I mean, you 
you do shameful things. Um, and so there's this image that we have of what a drug addict looks like or what an alcoholic looks like, and it's not pretty, right? right? It's not like a workaholic. We go, oh yeah, <laughs> that's so that's so awful and ugly, yeah. you know. Um, so there's that that image that we have, and then it's also we have we people largely have it still on willpower, you know. That if like just stop, uh-huh. like it just doesn't make sense to us why you would continue. I mean, I almost lost my daughter. I almost mm. lost a job. I had DUIs. I mean, I my marriage was ruined. Like it doesn't make sense to us. And it scares us, I think. It scares people to go, why? Why Why are you still doing this? Like, why? You just stop. You know, you're losing everything. And that contributes to the stigma or the shame, you know, that it, that the people who get addicted are weak. You know, it's Yeah, weak. I think that's, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. It's the stigma. Uh, yeah, when someone has a stigma of being a, an addict, they are considered a weak person. Right. And no one wants to be looked at like they're weak. Right. It allows we- us to see past the facade in a way because we all have that that facade and we're afraid to to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that stigma has a lot to do with our unwillingness to to be vulnerable about some of our weaknesses. Yeah. And if we're able to to be vulnerable in a way that is productive, it's not the faux vulnerability. It it is it is acknowledging the fact that I need to change then we shouldn't feel ashamed. We, we, the, the, we need to uncouple the shame. There's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt says something about the behaviors mm-hmm. that we do. Shame says something about who I am as a person. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the first step in sort of uncoupling that is realizing that it's okay to feel guilty for your behaviors, but the way to let go of that guilt is to let go of those behaviors mm-hmm. because then you're no longer guilty anymore if you stop doing the thing and uh, there's an opportunity for you to start again. We learned that in meditation. You can always begin again and I think recovery is very much the same way. You can always begin again. Yeah. The thing too is like if you are in recovery, people who are going to you know judge you negatively, like it's actually a really good filter to get for you to know who to get out of your life it's amazing yeah so uh, and i always just think just wait (laughs) like to someone who says because life has its way with everybody right and and the people who tend to judge typically haven't been to a place that has brought them to the edges of themselves yet or you know to into enough pain Mm -hmm. and i don't say just wait in like a mean way like it's gonna happen to you (laughs) but like it's okay they just have they don't know Mm -hmm. you know they haven't been there yet Mm um how and you we don't have compassion often for things that we don't experience ourselves right so um but so i think and she asked how how do we get rid of it i mean i think having these conversations is the way yeah that we get rid of it right and just i i i don't feel shame about anything that happened in my addiction um, because I've talked about it so much, right. you know, and you could you would feel guilt if you had a drink right now, and but that's that's I think guilt is the useful emotion here. It's, it's a corrective emotion, exactly. When it's, when it's yeah, when it's I mean it exists in us for a reason. It's to correct our behavior. But I wouldn't think, oh my God, I'm you know I wouldn't have shame per se. Yeah, Laura V has another question for us. Yeah, um, I just want to add one thing to Marissa's thing is uh, if you do have you know a problem and you're in recovery, you know, on the other side of that 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 coin of judgment, you're going to have a lot of people who are proud of you. 
and who are going to support you. Yeah. And it actually can make your relationship stronger. Like Going back to the trauma, the family trauma thing, like you can actually heal a lot of that trauma through this recovery. So, uh, yeah, just try to try to ignore that stigma. All right. Laura V's question. What's the best way to bring up behavioral concerns or addiction patterns you've noticed to a loved one in a supportive way? Ooh, <laughs> supportive way is the key, right? <laughs> yes. Because I know with, with my mom you know, and I was a kid, so I didn't really have the mental capacity. I didn't have the wherewithal. <laughs> Nor should you. Uh, right. I, didn't, right. I, I wasn't able. Mom, you're drunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wasn't able at age six to say, you know, uh, you, I'd like to sit down. And yeah. Let's, yeah. let's talk about changing your behaviors. Uh, and, and so I, 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 you know, I, I didn't even understand it. Right. I said, well, maybe she doesn't love me if she's, mm-hmm. if she's drinking. Right. And, and so, uh, we have to be careful how we, we, we approach someone because what Ryan talked about earlier, judgment is but a mirror. And so if I go up to Ryan and say, I can't believe you're doing this. Mm-hmm. First of all, that's not productive. Right. Mm-hmm. If you want to lose an argument in, in you know, a, f- a few short words, that's the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. You need to do this. Right. <laughs> It never works, right? I think for me, uh, trying to understand the person where they're coming from, you just said you don't have compassion for someone if you haven't gone through it. But you can sit down with them and try to, to maybe if you can't have empathy because you don't understand the situation, you, you can you can try to better understand what they're going through. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, it goes back to those those nine points, like to say, I you know, this isn't your fault, but it's your responsibility. And this is what I see. Um, from my perspective, this is what I'm seeing. And I mean, sometimes it's just um, enough to say, hey, like, are you okay? Mm. You know, like, tell me what's going on. Because it seems like this is what I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard. It's really hard. And we're especially afraid to do that with people who we're close to because we don't want to lose them, right? We don't want them to run away yeah. um, when we call out their behaviors. Um, but love has hard conversations yeah yeah bex and i have a i will tell you policy and i i screw up on this one all the time but um we 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 actually avoid saying are you okay or is there something usually what we say something wrong um it's something that happens in relationships all the time and i i screw up when i ask that because we have an agreement like if something's wrong i will tell you but I also have to live up to that on, on my end. That's right. If something's screwed up, I will tell you. Mm-hmm. And we have to have some difficult conversations. And if I don't live up to it, then it, it breaks that whole pact. And so having an I will tell you uh, pact with someone you care about is important because that's how you bring up anything in a supportive way because the other person's asking, please tell me. Mm-hmm. And and it, it removes any sort of aggression and, and certainly the uh, being passive aggressive never works either i mean when has that ever been productive <laughs> the only thing that produces is shitty relationships mm-hmm. right yeah and, and so having that sort of pact with someone the i will tell you pact the i will tell you policy which by the way is not something i made up it's from our friend colin wright who wrote my favorite ever book on relationships it's a 77 page book called some thoughts about relationships Ooh. Uh, we have a copy. I'll give you one. We, we, I, I buy them by the case and I love pass it. them out. It's good. It's the uh, best thing I've ever read about relationships. Uh, it's made Bex's and my relationship stronger. When we first started dating, actually, we, we read it together. It, it, every chapter is like one or two pages. Yeah. And it's like these, it's almost like Zen wisdom of, about relationships. And it's so good. It doesn't just apply to 
intimate or romantic relationships. It applies to business partnerships or friendships. Yeah. It's how you interact with other people, and it's really mm-hmm. important. And I will tell you is is my favorite policy out of that. And so I, I would encourage you, Laura, to to check out that book because we're talking about some thoughts about relationships, your relationship with the people closest to you, with whether it's a parent or mm-hmm. a, a significant other, you need to be willing mm-hmm. to talk to them. And also they need to be willing to want your advice, feedback, input as well. Right, yeah. that's why you keep it in like, this is what I'm observing. Yes. And not, uh, you know, this is, you're doing this, you're, you're making me feel this way, right. you're causing, you know, I think, and you always start out with, I love you. Yeah. And tell them also, you, you could, I think we approach these conversations like with, we try to tiptoe so much and you can just say like, I'm scared to have this conversation. Yeah. And what a great way to start. Yeah. I want to make sure I'm respecting you. Yeah. I want to make sure I'm respecting the I don't know how to the say the right words. Yeah. I, I, I but I, you know, but I'm going to try. Yeah. Like give a little preface, but I totally agree. Like if you're going to someone with love and support, um, and you're prefacing it with, Hey, I'm going to try and make this come out right. Uh, that's the best you can do. Some, you know, that's not going to work 100% of the time. I remember having a conversation with my brother when he was 16 years old. Yeah. And I could, in his eyes, I could tell he didn't want to change. And I'm like, well, dude, like, I'm not going to sit here and make you change. I can't do that. Right. But you, as someone who loves him, yeah. you had to do that. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And it's, and you know, the conversation could go something like, uh, I love you. I want to strengthen our relationship. I want to make sure we have the best relationship possible. Mm-hmm. You know, personally, I feel like there are some things getting in the way and I'd like to talk to you about what those things are if you're open to having this conversation. So maybe just ask them if they're even ho- open to having a conversation like that. Mm-hmm. And that could be a nice bridge into, you know, sharing some of the concerns you have. Yeah. Um, but they do have to be open to the conversation in order to have it for sure. Yeah. You know, one addiction we didn't talk about today, and we often get questions about it. I'm surprised we didn't get questions about it today, is addiction to pornography. Mm. And I don't know if there's a correlation. When you're helping people, you you teach some classes and stuff. Do you find that there are sort of coupling addictions? I mean, uh, drugs and alcohol often go together. Alcohol and smoking go together, I'm sure. It's interesting because that's all drugs. But it's, we differentiate them. Right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah right. I know and, what you mean, no though. No cross yeah. addictions, and, yeah. Right. And uh, I've noticed smoking and smartphone addiction <laughs> go hand in hand mm. as well. In fact, Ryan and I often say scrolling is the new smoking <laughs> because if you go outside, say this office yeah, building just, that we're in, there's someone who has a cigarette and a smartphone in one hand at oh. the same time. I think every time we say that, smokers are like, oh my God, this can be even better. <laughs> I never thought about that. So, so um, have you have you run across people who have uh, have coupled sort of an alcohol addiction with porn addiction, or maybe just porn addiction separately? Yeah, there's uh, a lot of times what happens is this sort of cross addiction thing, or uh, people will quit one addiction and another flares up. Oh, okay. Because it's all coming from the same place. Yeah, and you need you need that dopamine hit. You need it from somewhere, yeah. right? Yeah. So, yes, the answer is it happens a lot, and um, and you just work through each you knowing that it's all coming from the same place, right? Mm. You you the there's no magic way to get through this. It's like, but you but to go slow and patiently, you know, I think a lot of people make the mistake of going, I'm going to get sober and then I'm going to clean up my food and I'm going to never look at porn again. And I'm going to never do Netflix again. I'm going to, you know, sell all my belongings and I want to be perfect. Mm. And that becomes another addiction, you right. know? Yeah. So in fact it becomes, so there's a, a psychological 
phenomenon. It's the opposite of hoarding is Spartanism, yeah. where someone can't stop letting go. Mm. That's a type of addiction as well. And it's weird. I, I'm a person who has a relatively addictive personality, and, and so does Ryan. Mm-hmm. But I don't get addicted to all of these things. And, yeah. and I don't get addicted to all of them equally. <laughs> like I used to be so jealous of smokers. Because like I I used to smoke like maybe a pack a month, yeah. but I legitimately tried to get when I see a smoke. I tried too. When a smoker takes that head of a cigarette and they're like, ah, I'm like I want to feel like that, and I never got that <laughs> either. Smoking ever. Me either. <laughs> Weed couldn't do it. Yeah, just my, didn't have that right effect on uh, me. Yeah, my addictions are real addictions like opiates. <laughs> <laughs> you go to like the class nine. That's 10. right, right. Yeah. <laughs> I know punk. That's right. <laughs> mess around with that tobacco oh man no but I've, I've realized like for me like coffee is an addiction with with marginal uh like i it would it would be difficult for me to give up but there are marginal negative consequences so it's not that big of a deal porn uh bex and i watch it occasionally together but like i, I it's I, i'm a take it or leave it kind of person although i think when i was in my first marriage, like it was a rather sexless marriage and I turned to porn a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. And even then, I don't think I was necessarily addicted to it. All, although I, it was, it was masking the, the sort of problem uh, that was mm-hmm. going on yeah. in, in my relationship. So maybe even technically I was addicted to it, it was certainly a, a bad habit, yes. mm-hmm. uh, e- even yes. if it wasn't an addiction. And now it is not a, a bad habit at all because I, I don't have, I don't feel tethered to it. I don't feel compelled toward it. You're not compulsively it. doing it. No. And, and, despite your will not to. Yeah. Right. And and um, although I have like a YouTube addiction, like yeah. I find to me, like for me, that is quite distracting. Yeah. If I pull up YouTube, like, I need to schedule it because otherwise I will fall down the rabbit hole and three and a half hours later, I'm drooling on myself watching like vegans debate carnivores. <laughs> uh, is it vegans debating carnivores? It used to be rat battles. I do, yeah. Canadian rat battles wow. in particular. Yeah. King of the dot. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, I think um, uh, we've talked about a lot today. Uh, Laura, where should we send folks? I want to encourage them to check out your book. We are the luckiest. Uh, you also teach some classes. Where can people find you online? Everything is on my website, which is my name. So lauramccowan.com. Well, we will cool. send folks there, encourage them to to read your book as well. We'll put a link to both of those in the show notes. I want to acknowledge you, yes. not just for sharing your story, but for helping other people. I think you're doing something meaningful, and we're really grateful thank you shared you. this with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Laura. Yeah. And thank you, patrons, for your support. Without yes. you, this wouldn't be possible. So thank you as well. Yes, indeed. All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you soon. Bye. Minimalists. <laughs>